Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much, O Lord, for the privilege of being able to consider your word together. Father, every time we do that, it is to us, your divine grace. And all the more, Father, that we get to do it together. The body of believers, people who've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. And when we gather every Sunday across the world, we get to rehearse what you have done and what you are doing. We get to have our lives shaped by your word, by your gospel. And so, Father, we ask that you might speak. We pray that you would give us attentive ears. Pray that your spirit might fill us up. We pray that you might do all of that so that you might receive glory and honor and praise. And dear Father, I ask that you might use me even now. Pray that you might receive honor and praise and glory as I bring your word to these people. Amen. Reverend Robert J. Thomas went to China as a missionary in 1863. But really, he had a bigger heart for all of Asia. And so while he was there, he met two Koreans who spoke Chinese. And they said, you know, if you go to Korea, you might find people who actually can understand you because you speak Chinese. And so he quickly resolved to take a ship and go there in order to take the gospel to the Koreans, even if it meant giving it to them in Chinese, not necessarily in their native tongue. But Korea in those days did not want any foreigners in their borders. And the penalty for entry was death. But that didn't stop the reverend. The ship, he he sailed a ship and went across to Korea through the Taitong River and sailed there slowly up against the wall of Pyongyang. Stops were made in several places to let Mr. Thomas get out the boat and give away Bibles and gospel tracts to anyone bold enough to receive it, while leaving leftover copies on the riverside for places where he couldn't find people. Soon enough, thousands of Koreans lined up the shores of the river bearing weapons. The ship left, only to return back a few weeks later, hoping to make contact with people. But this time, the Koreans were already waiting, waiting to kill. And while the men tried to reach land to distribute Bibles, Koreans surrounded the ship with one aim, to burn the people and the ship down. So men jumped out of the ship with weapons to fight back, but except for Reverend Thomas, who was described as acting very weird, very strange, While others picked up arms to wage war, his arms were filled with Bibles and books that he thrusted upon the Koreans that were watching while the fight ensued in the rivers. Only soon enough to be beaten and killed himself. They killed Mr. Thomas not knowing that they were actually killing the one who had come to their shores with the aim of helping them not knowing the precious gift he had to offer them. 
Though many of the books and the Bibles were burnt, the Lord and his divine providence would use the few that were rescued, the few Bibles and tracts, to later save some of the readers. Years later, it would be those Christians who would be waiting again in the shorelines, waiting for another set of missionaries to come. This time in God's grace, the government relented. That's how the gospel first came to Korea. In fact, if you were to go back, you'll learn is that the first set of churches were built right along the walled city of Pyongyang. What causes men and women like Reverend Thomas to live so boldly, desperately longing for sinners to know about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, willing to risk even their own lives just so that people can come to faith? What causes people in general who at one point in their lives consider their life to be peaceful, a life full of ease, only to learn that they are enemies to God, later to come to hear that they can find salvation in Jesus Christ, and then they receive new life, and their life now turns upside down. What causes such kinds of people to be content, even in the face of adversity, even with death looming? My friends, it's coming to terms with the marvelous works of Christ, marvelous work of Christ that makes people do things like that, do radical things. You see, our text this morning is filled with the hope of the gospel, if you haven't heard it already, as Paul seeks to put to Timothy's mind what should be of first importance to him in this new ministry. So before we consider 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17, Let me give us a bit of context, help us understand where we're at. Paul has left Timothy behind in Ephesus because the church seems to have given themselves over to false teaching. The false teachers seem to be spreading lies, devoting themselves to myths, endless genealogies, promoting speculations, focusing on the things that they themselves are uncertain of, which likely led to many vain discussions. In fact, that's what we see. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, then you might be helped to look at verses 8 to 10. They misunderstood God's purpose in giving the law, and therefore they were misleading others. Paul warned the Ephesians elders in Acts 20, saying, you know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, brothers and sisters, regardless of how much clarity on what exactly this false teaching was, what matters is what it was producing. It was drawing people away from the truth. And what you'll find if you, you know, keep reading 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 15, it was affecting their behavior. That's what it says. Paul says, and if I delay, you may know, you, Timothy, are know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When the truth of God's word becomes unclear to us, it will impact our behavior and the Christian's pursuit of godliness. Well, this is no old problem, isn't it? We live in an age where the truth is considered subjective. It's my truth versus your truth. And how we live in this world is considered something of my personal choice. 
See, this tendency can easily creep in even to the hearts of God's people in his church. And the way we know we have started to show disregard for God's truth is by considering how our behavior changes towards it. Are we drawn closer and closer to God's word and God's truth and God's gospel? Are we drawn further away from it? That's how we will know, considering our behavior. Paul knows from this in his own life, the problem of such kind of teaching. I mean, just look at the way Paul describes his past life. You'll find it again in 1 Timothy, but listen to what he says. Previously, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul both knew what it meant to be something of a false teacher, something he was doing in his previous life before Christ. And he also knew the problem that was at stake. If God's truth, his word, his law were only for certain kinds of people, people who could somehow fix themselves up, then there was no hope for people like Paul. Brothers and sisters, we have to praise the Lord, isn't it? Because that's not the case. Because God has intended a plan. God has made a plan for all peoples. Thanks be to God that though these false, these false teachers were teaching lies, Paul sends Timothy bearing the truth. That's why Paul begins the way he does in our section of verses today. But the false teachers did not know what they were saying, according to verse 7. Paul wants Timothy and the church to rest their hope on this trustworthy saying. He wants to make clear the contrast between the work of the false teachers and the work of Christ. So that, that's what we'll find in our text today. Let me read it again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I think the main point of this text is to fully accept and trust in the marvelous work of Christ. Fully accept and trust in the marvelous work of Christ. And in order to fully accept and trust in it, I want us to see three questions that this text is seeking to answer. Question number one, what has Christ come to do? Or what Christ does for us? Question number two, what, what does Christ do through us? What Christ does through us? And finally, what Christ enables in us? So what Christ does for us, what Christ does through us, and what Christ enables in us. Let's consider that first point, what Christ does for us. Paul gets straight to the point and wants Timothy to focus his attention on Christ's incarnation. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one who was fully God, became fully man and was born as a man. The one who shared in being immortal along with the rest of Trinity now takes on human flesh. Let me pause for a moment. 
Just consider how staggering that is. That the God of the universe sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, to leave the glories of heaven, to be born into a pretty inglorious world, not so glorious world. He was the one who fully enjoyed loving fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit, now sent on earth on a mission and placed in a world filled with broken relationships. We know that this is no last-ditch effort from God. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was always part of God's plan. And consider Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Well, consider that famous text in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, for a moment here, if I wonder if you're here as a non-Christian, you've been invited to come to this church, uh, I want you to know that just as much as uh, I understand how it is to be welcomed by this church as a visitor, I really hope that you will be welcomed really well by this church. I'm so glad that you're here. But over the course of the sermon, I'm going to try to address you a little bit. So I, I hope that my addressing will help you engage with maybe the Christians you see here or a Christian that brought you here. But let me begin by kind of asking you a few things. I hope you paid attention to the verses that I just read. I want you to consider those words and see just how much God cares for the world. I wonder how often you've argued with your Christian friend saying that if only God would reveal himself, will you believe? Well, my friend, you want direct revelation? Read about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Consider why God sends Jesus Christ the Son. This is just the book of Isaiah, but across the entire Bible, whenever God's people were in need of saving and rescuing or redeeming, God continued to promise them a future, better salvation, a future, better rescue and redemption. And all of that comes to full fruition in, in Jesus Christ's incarnation. Jesus was born in the flesh, born to, born to Mary and Joseph. And when he was little, he sat in the temple listening to the word of God. He was seen and tested to by people. I mean, you're, you're hearing all about that in the book of Luke, right, as you work through that sermon series. He experienced what it felt to be tired and weary from a long journey. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he relented. He was without sin. He met face to face with people, called them to become his disciples. He taught on the streets and by the shores and in temples and in people's homes. And even in, he, in his healing, everything, people witnessed. People were healed. Demons were physically driven out in the presence of Jesus. The Emmanuel was present amongst his disciples. And whatever he taught, he exemplified in his living, fully obeying God the Father. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the anointed chosen one, the Messiah, born into this world, but born with one clear purpose, to save sinners. So what has Christ come to do? Save sinners. 
It's in the text, right? You know, many theologians and non-Christians have no problem with Jesus being born into the world, but to tell them that Jesus has come to save sinners from their sin through his atoning work, that's outrageous. I've had multiple conversations with non-Christians who see the necessity of having Jesus Christ born into the world merely as a model for good living. In other words, look to Jesus, be like Jesus. Life will be all right. For some, they consider the necessity of Christ's incarnation as a gateway towards eternal health and prosperity. You know, where I'm from, I often hear the phrase, just say, in the name of Jesus, and whatever you command will happen. Command cancer to go away, and believe me, it's gone. Zambian pastor Conrad Mbewe says that in Africa, the blood of birds and animals is used as a charm of protection from witchcraft. It becomes, it's become popular, even amongst so-called Christians, to have bumper stickers that declare protected by the blood of Jesus. But my friends, Jesus' blood won't protect you from traffic fines, from cutting people on the road. That's on you. You see, the problem with all of these views and other false views is that it narrows the purpose of Christ's incarnation to meeting our personal determined needs. We want a Christ to fix what we think is our biggest need. In that phrase, to save sinners, Paul identifies what really is the world's biggest problem. We all have a sin problem. And that problem is directed towards God. How have we sinned again, you might wonder? Well, look, look again at 1 Timothy, consider verses 9 and 11. Look at the language Paul uses to explain how God uses his law. He says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy and profane, who strike fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers. You see the list, right? Maybe today, in between lunch and later on when we gather together, read back on 1 Timothy. Consider that list again. Slowly consider it. It is all-encompassing. We're meant to learn something about sin. Sin affects our whole being, our entire existence, shaped around our desire for sin. It shapes our behavior, our practice, our actions. And not only that, it declares us unjust and unholy because ultimately our sin is against God. Sin is the declaration that we are at war against God. And that though we might not be verbalizing it, we show it with our lives. Sin sees all that we think we need in life and, it, and makes it ultimate. We begin to treat it as if if we do not have it, then we cannot live. Sin makes us think that we can be God and we are not. Sin befuddles us. It actually makes us foolish. Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider that if God met all of your so-called needs and wants, but if he never dealt with your truly biggest need and your biggest want, 
ending a rebellion against him, dealing with your sin, then can I ask you, is he really a good God? I wonder if some of you have come to this church with a great burden on your back, a truly great unmet need. Let me encourage you to talk to one of the elders here, have them pray with you. But if you've come, my friend, solely just to have that need met, without understanding your biggest problem, you're going to leave not, feeling ha- not, not having your needs truly met. You might feel satisfied. You might feel walked away feeling happy, but it's going to leave a hole. Sin ultimately produces rebellion, which leads to our death. And that is the gateway to eternal punishment. Because we, sinful, unholy people, stand in rebellion against God. And yet consider what it says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is glorious news. This is news worth thinking about. Christ Jesus saves those who are truly unsavable, those destined to receive God's wrath and justice for their sin. Jesus Christ came to save us from hell. We deserved it. Jesus Christ really saves us from ourselves. And he does that by giving up his life as a ransom, a payment price for sinners. The ultimate fulfillment of the purpose of Christ's incarnation is in his death and in his resurrection. We've been singing about that all morning so far. Jesus is nailed on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sin. The Emmanuel, God with us, died amongst the humanity that lived in opposition, all so that we could be saved from sin, saved to God, saved from our rebellion, to become friends. How do we know that? Because the grave could not restrain him. In his resurrection, we see the joy of having our sins forgiven and life anew in Christ and relationship restored with God. But just consider how the verse ends. Of whom I am the foremost. You see, Paul's conclusion is it's both sobering and sweet. In coming to believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ, Paul now sees himself exactly the way he ought to. The foremost sinner, the worst of sinners. You know, indeed, knowing what we know in 1 Timothy and in the book of Acts, one might argue Paul likely was the worst of sinners. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe you're here thinking, but I'm just not like Paul. I've never blasphemed I've never persecuted Christians. I'm really not in opposition to God. Maybe you're a child here and you're thinking, well, I listen to my mom and dad even when they tell me what the gospel is. But I want you to know that just merely listening isn't sufficient enough. You must believe. Maybe you're here and you've concluded that you're actually a nice person. You're not murdering people. But I want to clarify something. Niceness is not the same as sinlessness. Niceness is not the same as sinlessness. I mean, you know that story of Troy and the Trojan horse, that wooden horse built by the Greeks to get into the city of Troy? 
to be left as an offering to Athena. On the outside, our lives might look like that horse, beautiful, fine, and lovely, even well put together. But God, unlike the people in that city, sees into the hearts. And much like the Greek army hiding inside the horse, waiting to kill, our hearts are solely fixed on rebellion. You see, it's, it's, it's really the problem of comparing ourselves with, an, with another person's sin and concluding we're just not that bad. That kind of response is skewed because it doesn't seek to see things the way God sees it, but rather the way we see it. Think about that list again, 1 Timothy 1.10. No one can look at that list and su- suggest that they've never lied. Paul had something that seems so light and accepted as lying in people's cultures into that list because he wants us to see that our choice to sin against God makes us evil. And lying is evidence of evil. That's why we need divine intervention, my friend. But beloved, when we see our sin the way Jesus sees it, And when we come to accept that only Jesus can wash our sins away by his precious blood, that indeed we are much like Paul, the worst of sinners. And though we may not have sinned like Paul, we are sinners like Paul. Then when we understand the mercy we receive from God, we consider it to be marvelous. It is indeed marvelous because the worst of sinners, me, the foremost of sinners, Gain God's mercy. Robert Murray McShane says it so helpfully. Learn much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. Brothers and sisters, no better thing for us to do than to consider both our sin and then to turn to Jesus and consider how great Jesus is. So let me ask you, What sin seems so close to you that you have looked more to your sin and less to the Savior who saves you from your sin? What is entangling you right now that you ought to confess and take to the Lord? This verse is the reason why we as Christians are always living in the light of the cross of Christ. This is what it means to fully accept this message. And it is what the false teachers got wrong. They were operating out of a sense of having achieved righteousness. They were more interested in speculations and in deception. Paul, however, recognizes that there is no bypassing Christ's atonement in the Christian life, in the church, and in ministry. And we are left with no lack of clarity on it. Therefore, we need this gospel daily in our lives. Brother Pastor, 
if I can address you for a moment here, when your heart seemed to sort of wane from the marvelous beauty of the gospel and you somehow think, maybe my members need something else, turn to God's word. There, are, there is no better answer to your congregation's biggest need than Jesus Christ on the cross. Turn to Christ. Look to Christ. So whether you are a new Christian or you've been a Christian for many years, I, we pray, I pray that God would never let your heart grow cold or bored towards his gospel. Well, we'll move along. We'll move along quicker, right? I hope. Let's look at the next verse and consider then what Christ does through us. That's my second point. What Christ does through us. Paul intends for Timothy to not just stop at seeing Christ's work in conversion, but also to see what Christ does even now in the life of believers. We see two things that Christ does. Number one, Christ displays his perfect patience. Number two, Christ uses our lives as an example to unbelievers. Let's look at that first one. Christ displays his perfect patience. Paul looks at his own life of sinfulness and is reminded of God's mercy towards him as an evidence of patience, God's patience towards him. You know, that's another theme you can trace in the Bible. I mean, you just read about that in Numbers, right? This theme of God's patience towards sinners. God could have well enough destroyed the world once and for all for the utter sinfulness in Genesis. But that was neither God's plan nor his kind of merciful justice. And when God describes himself to the Israelites, what does he say? He's a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In his patience, he preserves Noah and his family and the animals. In his patience, he brought the Israelites out of the promised land and then twice later out of the exile. Even though they grumbled, even though they said they were disappointed, even though they turned to idols. We see in Christ's patience towards men like Paul, who deserved to be consumed by fire, much like Achan and his family, but instead experienced God's love and unrelenting faithfulness. You see, God's patience is his relenting, his holding back temporarily from his just anger and instead pouring his love and faithfulness. It's not that somehow God has sort of given up on his anger against sin. God will judge it. But for now, it's his mercy that he is patient. My non-Christian friend, let me, let me kind of talk to you again here. Uh, I want you to, to read these verses and then consider again what God says in Romans 2, 4 and 5. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to your repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. My friend, I want you to see the promise of Christ's patience and not treat it as a reason for you to continue where you're at. Now will always be the best time to repent and believe in the finished work of Christ. 
Do not think that your patience in waiting for the right time to repent is the same as God's patience towards you right now. Let me say that again. Do not think that your patience in waiting for the right time to repent is the same as God's patience towards you. So I think Paul has this view of Christ's patience and he shows it to sinners in their ongoing sin instead of God's wrath. But brothers and sisters, don't we experience God's patience on a regular basis? I mean, think how often we struggle and we're tempted to sin. Think of how quickly we are to forget what he has done in saving us from our sin. How quickly we doubt whether he has done anything good enough for us. Whether he is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, consider how some of us are quick to put others down in order to puff ourselves up. Consider how impatient we might be and yet how patient God is. When we are caught up in our sin, the answer is not to comfort ourselves by, by reminding ourselves, well, Christ is patient. I have time. That comfort, the sort of idea of comfort, is actually a slow bleed, hardening our hearts. Rather, we need to reflect on why Christ chooses to be patient at all, even though we don't deserve it, and yet we receive it. Let me just think specifically when we, about prayer. Think how little we devote ourselves to praying. Prayer requires patience, right? It requires a consistent patience. He, bringing our requests to God, not knowing when he will answer it, having to go back to him again. But prayer can only be motivated when we come to realize how, both how desperate we are and how God cares to provide and meet our needs in his way and his time. So whenever we treat prayer as a short solution to dealing with our biggest problems rather than a regular lifeline, a means of practicing our trust in God's goodness and patience, then we will never pray. But we know that's not true. God is indeed patient. So we bring our needs to him. We bring our needs regularly. We pray for the Lord to be at work individually in our lives, amongst one another, in this church, in this city, around the world. We pray because our God is patient. Secondly, Christ uses our lives as an example of, for unbelievers. Christ's patience towards us is meant to stand as a witness to the world. Christ as such uses us as trophies of his grace to call sinners to see the salvation that God provides for us. How marvelous that Christ would choose us, weak vessels, to be, to be the beacon of his unending love and of God's tender kindness. And so maybe you're a new Christian. You've become a Christian in the last few years, maybe. And you've begun to think, look, I'm just not as, I'm just not like the rest of these other Christians. God, could, God couldn't use me. Maybe specifically you're, an, you're, you're a new Christian and you've been wanting to share the gospel with your non-Christian colleague or your family member and you think, God can't use me. I don't have enough information. I need more time. My friend, I want you to know that that's not how God works. 
If you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that is evidence of God's powerful grace. And that means that you, even though you might not have all the right words to say, can learn how to communicate God's powerful gospel. What does it mean for us to be an example to the unbelievers? How can we do that? Well, one, like I've already been alluding, we do that through our words, isn't it? What is it that we want to convey to our non-Christian friends but the gospel of Jesus Christ? We don't just kind of want to explain to them how things are going well. Talk to them about particular good things that have gone on. I pray that God would give me a job and God gave me a job. I've been praying for God to help me find a church and he helped me provide a church. I mean, my friends, some of these things are good things to communicate with our non-Christians. But what they need to hear is how God saves them from their sin. To consider how you might use even your life story to speak about God's story of salvation. To spotlight the gospel more and your life less. We also do that, my friends, in our actions, through our actions. You know, a number of years ago, I was sitting um, at the university food court with a student who had just become a Christian and was just struck at how zealous he was. Everywhere he went, every table he sat at, he was finding some way or the other to speak about the gospel. It was just, it was breathtaking. It was exciting to me. I was amazed at God's work in his life. Truly, I still am. But then I remember being invited to his home one day for dinner. Um, he said, well, listen, I, you know, all of my, my family members are not Christians, and I just want to introduce them to other Christians. Can you come join me? It was, it was a joy. I had a fantastic meal. But I noticed something that was quite interesting. You know that, that zeal and joy that he had for the gospel was sort of all of a sudden replaced by anger and frustration, disappointment, lack of obedience when his parents wanted him to kind of serve along in, the, in his home, angry at his brother for not passing the food over to him. He was hungry. Honestly, his anger towards them was getting in the way of the gospel that he sought to want to proclaim. How often have we been there? Where our lives don't seem to match up with the message that we proclaim. What does your life, apart from, from church, apart from being around Christians, portray about the grace of God? What might God want you to change about your life now, today? Even when you step back at work tomorrow, so that you might live truly as a Christian, in light of God's saving grace. Beloved Christians, our lives are to be marked by an ongoing pursuit of godliness. And so the next time you begin to wonder why God has placed you where he has, consider the non-Christians placed in your life. Consider how God might use you, maybe even to bring salvation to them. You see, it is this desire to be trophies of grace that have led people much like Reverend Robert Thomas to leave his home to the lands of a people who are longing to kill <laughs> because he loves what the gospel can do. 
Let's consider our last point. What Christ enables in us. Look at that last line in verse 17. Look at how Paul turns in some ways. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost as if Paul could no longer continue in his letter and sort of reminding Timothy what's of first importance, that his automatic response is praise and adoration and worship to God. You see, the false teachers in the church of Ephesus were so filled with speculation and controversy and misunderstanding that they were misguiding the church. You know, ultimately how they were misguiding the church, apart from sort of moving their gaze from the gospel, was by turning their attention away from worship of God. But when a person has truly come to see how great their sin is, how undeserving they are of God's grace, they cannot but stop. They cannot but continue praising their God who saves. I mean, notice the, uh, the attributes of God that Paul acknowledges. God is the king of ages. No earthly ruler in ancient Turkey or Ephesus, nor any modern ruler of our day and age can be compared to this king of ages. His rule is an everlasting rule. And we have no reason to doubt that his everlasting rule is for our good. God is the immortal and the invisible. What a contrast to what we've been thinking about. God does not need human form. He does not need to even show himself or make himself visible. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And he's the one who lives forever by his own power. Which means that in his immortality, he has the power to give life. And he sends forth his son so that those who look to the cross know how they can have life from the immortal God. Finally, God is the only God. Some translations would say he is the only wise God. Indeed, in his wisdom, he turns blasphemers into people for his praises. In his wisdom, he humbles us from self-exaltation to full exaltation of God. In his wisdom, he bears up with the worst of sinners, patiently transforming us. And yet he is not a God who wants to share himself with other gods. He is the only God. So what does it look like to live lives of worship? Consider the lines to this hymn written by Anne Griffith. Gladly would I leave behind me all the pleasures I have known to pursue surpassing treasures at the throne of God the Son. Worthy of unending worship, love, and loveliness is he. By his precious death were millions from the jaws of death set free. Gladly would I give to Jesus all affection, everything. For the washing of his mercy makes my ransomed heart to sing. Holy, holy is the chorus rising up from those who see Christ exalted, bright and burning full of power and purity. Earthly treasures all are passing. Thieves thieves break in and rust destroy. But in God are awesome splendors, love and everlasting joys. 
We must not minimize our understanding of worship to be just the songs we sing. Although it is right to sing songs that direct our hearts to true worship of God. But when we see how marvelous our salvation is, we respond in lives of worship. Sovereign hope. You want to know how you as God's people will bring God worship and praise and honor? Do not neglect the preaching of the gospel. Price it. Pray for it. Eagerly long for it. Come every Sunday excited to hear God's good news. Don't glaze over it when you hear your your pastors preach through it. Long for it. You know, we do not know the long-term legacy of, of our churches, of our ministry. But there will come a time when we will all be gone. So we want to think now, what should we leave behind for the next generation of Christians? The next generation of members in this church. The next set of Christians across the world. The Lord tarries. Brothers and sisters, I've been praying that God would produce in your church a lasting legacy of a people who have treasured his gospel as of first importance. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, just as much as you entrusted this good news to Paul and Paul to Timothy and Timothy to the church, Lord, you have entrusted your gospel to this church. 